Welcome to the ECFR series of podcasts. We present the last contribution of Francisco de Borja Las Heras to the annual conference of the Academic Association for Contemporary Studies, talking about opportunities and challenges for global action. I think it makes a whole lot of sense to go back to the European continent and to the European, uh, what I call the European problematic, that is the dynamics inside the European Union and European uh, continent more broadly. And secondly, um, the second problem that I call the, the EU conundrum, that is that we are talking about a multilateral organization that tries to do common foreign policy, unlike the OEC Council of Europe and other institutions, yet without devolving sovereignty. In that regard, it's still a little bit like the OEC and the Council of Europe. So this is the EU conundrum. And the third uh, problem of cluster of problems is the emerging world questions. And I will, I will try to talk a little bit about each of, each of these questions. My take is that the tools and paradigms that the EU has been using since the inception of a political union might be a little bit obsolete, but we shouldn't be rushing to dismiss them outright as I'm afraid European countries are actually doing. Um, First question, the European problematic. I mean, what kind of an actor the EU is? An actor needs to project a vision, even if it's a problematic vision. And the EU doesn't have a common vision. Uh, Tony Yud talked about the sense of uh, the, the lack of a common purpose. So what is the EU's common purpose nowadays? It had two narratives, peace and prosperity. And both are being questioned. And my point is that the EU doesn't have a common narrative on another, um, on another question, the power. And I think this is, this is fundamental when, it, when we talked about what kind of foreign policy the EU does, does want to achieve. Because so far, in my experience, the EU projects a lot of uh, uncertainty, double standards sometimes, a lack of self-confidence, together with a permanent need of reaffirmation. What I, what I will call the selfie policy. I'll go back to that in a moment. Uh, still, on this European problematic, uh, there is the risk of political and security fragmentation in Europe. And this is coupled with bumpy integration, for instance, banking union. What I mean with this, uh, people talk a great deal about Brexit and Grexit. I think these are just visible aspects. But at bottom, what, what I think the EU foreign policy suffers a great deal about is the tarnished solidarity among the states. Because we see competing visions of security. Some Eastern countries are, live under acute threat perceptions. And to them, the, the main security threat is uh, resurgent Russia. Whereas from other Southern European countries, including our, our country, the, the threat doesn't come from the East, but it comes from the, from the South. And this, in common fora, results in a lot of strains, a clash for resources, and competing visions. And this affects the common strategy. But there's also, there's also another trend that I found out. And I call it Hobbesian self-reliance. What I mean with this? I mean that in, in a stage of crisis and in a stage of, of depleted resources, my feeling is that states are no longer vouching on, on common alliances, not even with their close allies. Look at the French and the Germans. They're vouching on, on self-preservation on the one hand, and if you talked about the Brits and the French, on keeping some trappings of power. But there is, there is, this is really going on if, if, you, if you look at the policies of some ministries of defense in Europe. 
Um, Richard has rightly mentioned the uh, nationalization of foreign policy. People talk about the renationalization. This is silly. Foreign policy has always been national. Um, and actually, I think we're witnessing the return of national foreign policies with a vengeance, including a number of bilateral deals. So in this context, uh, some key countries in the European scenario, such as Germany, France, UK, but also, also Poland, um, are actually reassessing their take on Europe and reassessing uh, what, is, what is their future on, on security. And some of their strategies, um, the EU is rather secondary, not European consultation. This is different. So we talked, Esther mentioned the Europeanization of foreign policy, what we call the downstreaming or downloading of European foreign policy. I have rather witnessed a strong pan-Europeanization of national foreign policies. I have, I might look a little bit ascetical, but my, my hunch is that states don't invest that much in a common foreign policy. They want their foreign policy to be common, which is a different thing. Um, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't overlook the fact that we're talking about a, a union and an asymmetric one at that of 30 states, roughly speaking, an enlarged union. And sometimes we're still with the visions of the EU 15 countries. And now we're talking about 30 countries with different visions. And I think we've, we've made little progress in trying to bring them together in that regard. A final question is still on this European uh, problematic is the power shifts in the EU, which clearly now favor Germany. So the question is not what policy will Mogherini will do. The question is what, poli what European foreign policy Merkel wants, together with a certain role with institutions, of course. But this is key. Now, uh, the, the EU problem, uh, like I said, um, we have the European problems, but we also have the question about how a multilateral institution, which on foreign policies is still based on consensus, bar some provisions here and there, how can it do a common foreign policy without actually assuming sovereignty from member states? So I'm gonna mention a few examples that I've lived in, in practice with these long nights coordinating positions um, in, in Vienna. EU instructions that never came, and when they came, they were really, really cheesy, so we have to, to smart up on the spot. Uh, one, one problem, for instance, what I call the straight jacket of 24-7 coordination. That is to say that Europeans need to coordinate their positions whenever there's a last-minute crisis or whenever human rights activists are arrested in Azerbaijan, etc. It has a value. It's, it's an asset. It balances positions, it puts brakes on the, on the hawks, and it makes the doves advance a little bit faster. But it's a hurdle. It's a hurdle whenever we need swift action and whenever we need uh, to, to, to project power. So sometimes, for instance, and this is an example, um, in, in the OEC, the, the EU delivers statements on a weekly basis, and it coordinates um, the positions with heads of missions and the, with deputies. And sometimes, uh, between Wednesday night and Thursday morning, there had been a last-minute debate or a last-minute development in Eastern Europe. We had to summon the EU heads of missions again, and they, they all needed to sometimes to call their, their capitals, whereas in the meantime, the Russians and the Americans were brokering deals among themselves, so we were sometimes a little bit clueless. Why I mean with this uh, is that we do a lot of navel-gazing diplomacy, procedure-based. So we do so much diplomacy among ourselves that we have just fewer time to, to, to look at the foreign policy crisis in question. And I think this is a, this is a hurdle. 
I do think coordination is needed, but it's, it's a hurdle. And also, at the national level, uh, sometimes there are serious differences of assessments and differences of diagnosis. Uh, you name it, Ukraine, for instance. Now multiply that with uh, 30 states and institutions, and it, it gets a little problematic. In the case of Ukraine, I'm being very blunt, member states are divided between those who have a certain uh, remorse and blame, lay the blame on the EU for not consulting with Russia on their turf, as we found out, and those who think that the, that the main trigger for the crisis was Russian uh, encroachment on an independent foreign nation. And this is still plays a great deal when it, when it comes to the future solution. So now this, this naval case in diplomacy opens so many spaces for hostile powers to divide and rule Europeans because we have a somewhat frivolous tendency to, to talk, go public on our differences. Uh, Hollande and Renzi yesterday, if my memory serves me well, talking about the need to show, to show some gesture to, to Moscow by the end of the year as a Christmas tree, even though, even though the situation in Ukraine has not improved. So we, we go public and we open spaces for the and rule. Now, another point um, is that diplomacy, foreign policy is based on diplomacy, but diplomacy is a Machiavellian business. It's not about solidarity. Diplomacy is about obtaining information, not sharing with your colleagues, not even sharing sometimes with, your, with, with the other national bodies, and scoring points for your government. And this is a stance in complete opposition to solidarity, information sharing, etc. And you leave that very vividly whenever it comes to, see, you, you see the French you know, getting their information from one side and not sharing with the others, etc. And this is, this is not changing. And it's not changing because a little bit with irony, is the unbearable lightness of uh, personalities in foreign policy. Ambassadors are appointed to score points. And of course, they don't want sometimes to, to enhance the common fora. They want to score points nationally and get, you know, look good uh, to the capitals. And this, is, this still plays a role. I mentioned before the selfie policy, and this is something that especially floors me about EU foreign policy in action. And this is having uh, commissioners uh, tweeting, I'm going to Albania to observe free and fair elections, whereas us on the ground were scared to death, there was violence, and certainly we, we, we thought that the commissioner hadn't briefed properly. So sometimes what we used to call it is tweet and go, tweet as you leave. But definitely it, it didn't make a difference on the, on the context. And recently we've seen a similar development when it comes to Bosnia. So we had Mogherini visiting Sarajevo, uh, stating, oh, I see a spirit of reform among the Bosnian leaders. Well, I, she might have been the only one who, 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 who sensed a willingness of reform among the Bosnian leaders. And now we have a referendum in a few weeks on the Republika Srpska, on the Office of High Representative. Anyway, so this is, these are problems that are specific to an institution that tries to do common foreign policy. Now, briefly, there are, the, thirdly, the emerging world questions, and I'm going to mention or uh, dwell on some which are particularly close to my heart. And this is, firstly, what um, this unpronounceable chap, Zbigniew Brzezinski, called the global political awakening. And that is the fact that you have revolutionary movements mobilized sometimes by Twitter and sometimes building on grievances or political political questions that turn 
our geopolitical, um, geopolitical order and our strategy to dust, that bring it down. And this is the case of Mohamed Bouazizi. I don't know if any one of you remember him, but he was the Tunisian vendor who set himself alight a few years ago and sadly died a few weeks afterwards. But he pretty much, uh, pretty much unraveled the whole structure and our understanding that, mind you, Arabs are not fit for democracy. Or Mustafa Nayem. Mustafa Nayem was the, the Afghan slash Ukrainian activist who rallied people on Maidan on the 21st of November uh, in, as, against the Yanukovych government and in favor of a certain European orientation. Now the question for you, the question for us, is how to orient our grand strategy given that we will witness more of these movements and they will, they will shackle our, our, our strategy and our, and our vision of, of the regions. Which is a question of what is the European vision of transformation of societies, of those societies that are complex, sometimes non-European, but crave for good governance, crave for empowerment, and sometimes, yes, crave for, the, for democracy. But together with that, we have a return of, uh, I think Richard mentioned it, the, and also Esther, the rising influence of um, emerging powers with a different vision on global governance. Some people call it neo-Westphalianism, but basically their understanding of international relations um, is based on assumptions which are uh, truly not very European. And they're often keen on balancing uh, the West altogether. Together with that, we have the rise of, again, of the security agenda. This is the ISIS Sisi dilemma, and as a response, as a response to ISIS, we see a certain European tendency and a certain Western tendency to go back to strongmen and to go back to dictatorships. And this is why Sisi has been welcomed amply with red carpets rolled along uh, Madrid, uh, Berlin, and if my memory serves me well, uh, Rome. So, what to do? What to do when? Um, when you have uh, human rights violations in some of these countries, but which, you know, whose leadership apparently we need for our own security. And I said, apparently. I have the, I have the hunch that Europeans are inclined to, to favor CCs uh, in order to stem CC. And that last, last news we had is that Hollande um, and apparently Cameron are countenancing an intervention in Syria, although 80% at least of the civilian casualties are created by the Assad government. So this is, this is tricky. Still, a very militaristic world, but a world where, uh, I'm afraid, we are witnessing, on the one hand, a retreat from Western interventionism, no surprise after the, the, the catastrophe of Iraq, but where the needs of interventions, on humanitarian interventions, are still there. And I'm afraid we have no answers for that. My, my feeling is that Europeans are willing to outsource their security and favor regional partners. But sometimes regional partners have a lot of stakes in the, in the crisis in question. And sometimes it's, I don't think it's a sensible solution. Um, some, concluding, some concluding thoughts on, on what all this could, could mean for, for the EU and the project of foreign policy. I mean, to the first question, the European problematic, well, ideally, we'll have a renewed emphasis on Europe as a political project. And ideally, that should trickle, trickle up or trickle down to, 
to the project of European foreign policy, maybe uh, the mixture of external shocks, the refugee crisis, the uh, antagonizing figures, and I don't mean Sarah Palin, I mean, um, I mean for instance, uh, Vladimir Putin, or but basically sometimes we need enemies, sadly. Uh, maybe it could, it could be an impetus to, to political integration that could benefit um, European foreign policy. As I see things, and I wholly agree with Richard, we are in the business of crisis management. But I do think that we badly need a strategic convergence, and that is not created by having Mogherini. That is created by having the Poles and the Spanish and the Italians sitting down and bridging positions on Ukraine, or sitting down on bridging positions on the, on the challenges from the South. I do think that rather than emphasizing EU foreign policy, I think what matters is a looser notion of European foreign policy, and that is also applicable to defense. I do think that the EU is a useful framework for pro power projection, the preservation of our model, and uh, stabilization of uh, you know, great chunks of the world that are inherently unstable. But I don't think we should emphasize uh, EU, EU first, but Europeans first, and we need to be flexible about it. This is why I, I do think that rather than insisting on the EU being a classical orchestra, I think we should um, come, come to terms with the fact that the EU will remain a sort of jazz band, but hopefully a jazz band not entirely on a jam session. I can only hope that we, that we discover um, new leaders in Europe and with a capacity for statecraft diplomacy. But foreign policy needs not risk-averse leaders, which is presently the place. We need risk-takers. And if Europe is again to, to maintain its model and to keep its influence, we'll need risk-taking leaders. I don't mean new Churchills. I'll be happy with just uh, sensible people on top who are willing to take decisions. Thank you.